In the beginning, the earth was without form and void. The sun shone upon the sleeping earth. Into this swirling maelstrom of fire, air and water, the first stirrings of life appeared. The seeds of life grew and strengthened, spread and diversified. Now, it required but one more ingredient. A great leader. To unite the quarreling tribes, to harness the power of the land, to build a legacy that would stand the test of time. A civilization. Welcome to Screen Looking, a podcast where close friends take a closer look at their favorite video games. I'm your host, Andrew Kuhar, and with me, as always, for our 15th episode is my co-host, Alex Koval. Alex, welcome back. Good to be back. Salutations, friends and listeners. You think you've recovered from the uh, Halloween episode yet? Uh, I'm almost there. I think by the end of November, I should be fully recovered. (laughs) Yeah, that seems like about right. Um, Also returning from our Halloween special edition of the show is our guest for today's conversation and one of Alex's longtime friends, Joe Jasek. We have brought Joe back onto the show to walk us through the inner workings of one of his favorite series, Sid Meier's Civilization. And uh, we're going to be talking about Civilization VI. It actually was just ported to the PlayStation 4 and Xbox One mere days ago uh, as of this recording. So welcome to the show, Joe. You want to say hi? Hello, guys, and hello, listeners. Glad to have you on. Uh, Before we get into the game specifically, and we're going to let Joe kind of take the reins on that, given that he is the civilization guru around here um for anyone who doesn't know civilization is the long-running critically acclaimed turn-based strategy game nowadays helmed by developer Firaxis, which finds the player reimagining how different civilizations across history could have expanded in all kinds of different scenarios so it's very much rooted in history and this is a series that debuted back in 1991 And since then, it's gradually seen some subtle revisions to its formula, its design presentation, which is more or less the lens that we like to look at most games through on this show. So while Alex and I have been studying up on this game ever since we knew how eager Joe was to share it with us and talk about it with us, um, given that Joe is the real expert here again, so we'll be doing more of a Q&A style format today and kind of let Joe just tell it like it is. So welcome back again, and since the two of you are so close, Alex, would you mind doing the honors and uh, introducing Joe a bit more for our listeners? I would absolutely love to. Um, So Joe, Jasek, and I go back quite a long way. Um, We were roommates in college, and um, we became fast friends, and uh, we've done pretty much everything you could think of. We've acted on stage together. We've hiked part of the Appalachian Trail um, in each other's weddings. Um, So Joe's been a tremendous source of support over almost 13 years or something like that. Uh, Yeah, we don't need to do the math. It was 2005 (laughs) when we met. So it was math math Um, years ago. And I've always known him as an expert on civilization. Um, He's been playing the game for as long (laughs) as I've known him. So if that tells you anything. 
My uh, friendship with civilization is... is technically longer than my friendship with Alex. Oh boy. That's impressive. Um, and he is also instructor of literature. Oh, I guess you could say English literature, right? And um, yeah, English and he's, teacher. He's certified. Yeah, yeah, English teacher. And he's certified mm-hmm. to teach social studies as well. So, with all that said, uh, Joe, I'm going to ask you to give uh, brief elevator pitches on some of your favorite games uh we'll say top three favorite games so that uh listeners can kind of get a an idea of where you're coming from by the way i should mention quickly that part of the reason we invited joe on was that we wanted to do an episode on a game that we were not very familiar with Mm -hmm. um because you know andy and i have very similar tastes so we thought it might be good to invite somebody uh that you know had taste in different games so i know we could kind of provide our listeners with a little bit of an ulterior perspective yeah so the strategy um, genre is not one we've ever talked about so far um even in passing so this is a good opportunity to branch out uh, even on that level yeah uh so joe do you want to give us your elevator pitches for your top three games yeah um when you asked me to prepare the list i realized i looked at the list and i don't have like a theme like i want to look at my list and say like oh i'm really into these type of games and i have no idea uh number one is the civilization series i can't really say one game over another because i've put how many hundreds of hours into the whole darn thing uh number two is skyrim uh enjoyable game that i only started playing actually this summer so i came to it late in the uh late in its life Number three is Portal and Portal 2. Hmm. Uh, again, another kind of a puzzling game. And then if I continue the list, it's like Bioshock Infinite, Tony Hawk Pro Skater 3, and Donkey <laughs> Kong Country 3. So again, I have no idea what kind of theme I'm looking at with all that nonsense. I remember uh, playing many hours, uh, you watching you play many hours of Tony Hawk's Pro Skater for the GameCube in college. Yes. And that, then you would take over and play Final Fantasy Tactics. Yep. That's pretty much most of our junior year of of college, I think. Yes. That and Rock Band, of course. Guitar Hero 3, actually. But yes. Guitar Hero 3, yes. 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 That's it. Yep. It's quite an eclectic collection. I don't know what the theme is, but but, but that's what it are. (laughs) No, it's a great collection either way. Uh, It's eclectic, but it is good. I approve. Yeah, we actually have more intersections than I thought, like with Skyrim and Portal, because those are two. Portal, I don't know know if I'd put that. Probably my top 10, I would say, but excellent Mm -hmm. game. Well, thanks for the list, Joe. Uh, it's a great collection. You mentioned Civ right at the top there, uh, given that it is definitely seems like it's your most favorite series, right, of all those? Absolutely. Yeah, just exactly why we brought you on here. And before we dive into Civ 6 specifically, there's a lot of things that Civ 6 has inherited from this series as a whole. And given that you have a knowledge of the series more broadly, not just you know the recent ones, um, do you think for our listeners you could just explain what makes civilization unique from other strategy games, especially given that this is a genre we don't, we don't normally cover. Like for Alex and I, we know our, our nearest strategy game equivalent, you know, is Warcraft and Starcraft that are real time strategy games where you're controlling little units. Um, And Civ is, seems like it's much more zoomed out broader. And I wonder if you could elaborate on what distinguishes it uh, within, you know, gaming and within the genre. Yeah. So it is a turn-based game. Uh, the classic, one of the classic Civ lines is, you know, one more turn, one more turn. Mm-hmm. Uh, originally, it was going to be real-time like um, Command & Conquer or Warcraft or something like that, but they quickly went to that turn-based system. And it's, call, it's part of what's called the 4X genre. 
which it stands for explore, expand, exploit, and exterminate. And that came with uh, Master of Orion, a game from 1993. And it's kind of just a cute way of describing a certain genre. Um, what you need to do is you'll start off with a settler and another unit. And through that and through the game mechanics, you take over the world. Uh, Civ, it goes from the beginning of time to uh, the near future, usually the year 2050. It was luxuries like air conditioning that brought down the Roman Empire. With air conditioning... Their windows were shut. They couldn't hear the barbarians coming. You start off with just one settler. Starts off simply, you found a city, and one of the things that the game does well is it's able to introduce a lot of different mechanics, but it gives them to you one at a time. So you've got one unit, then you've got one city, and you can only build a granary or um, a monument, something simple. And then as you go forth, you've got you have more and more and more options until you have 27,000 things that you can build in this city and you've got units everywhere and you're worrying about culture and war and you're worrying about science but that's much later on if you were to if i were to drop one of you two into a late game and explain everything that's going on your brain would just shut off and you would stop listening because there's so much <laughs> however um, it builds it in early so one of the things to know about Civ is there's different winning conditions, okay? It's not just I'm going to destroy my enemies or I'm going to be the richest person in the world. Those, those are things you can do. A uh, couple of these conditions are a science victory, which has been there uh, since the beginning, I believe. And it takes different forms. Usually you're shooting a rocket off into space, either to Alpha Centauri or you're going to the moon or you're going to Mars or something like that. Um, there's domination or conquest, which involves slaughtering your enemies. You know, it can be a classic war game. You can go and just have your troops roll over whatever civilization you want. So that's obviously going to be an option. And that's been there since the beginning. You can also do uh, a cultural victory. You can accrue so much culture and so much tourism that you become the most popular civilization in the world. Everyone wants to come to your country to wear your blue jeans and listen to your pop music. Um, <laughs> A <laughs> diplomatic victory is something that's also possible in some of the later games, which means you either have done so much good that you get diplomatic victory points and everyone thinks that you're awesome, or you get elected, you know, president of the world, depending on what version of the game you're playing. Uh, another one is a religious victory. This is very new, and we'll talk a little bit later about how Civ does religion and how it does some things good and some things problematically. But yes, if you have the most... Uh, popular religion in the world, you can get a religious victory. If there are no dogs in heaven, then when I die, I want to go where they went. There's a couple of other variants that came and went through the series. And then finally, there's what's called the histographic victory, which is a fancy way of saying score victory. If it hits 20, uh, 50 and nobody's won yet, the person with the highest score wins. Hmm. So a lot of different things that you can do. And that's partially what makes it interesting is there's so many directions. And also you're going for a science victory while that person next to you is trying to roll over with a military victory. Someone else is going for a religious victory and is trying to snipe your cultural victory. So you've got all of these things going on at once and you've got to be able to identify the leaders around you, what they're most likely to, what their motivations most likely are, which may be flat out stated as in later versions of the game, or you've just got a guess, like what is this person trying to do? It's a cultural victory, 
but their troops are really close to my border. So are they trying to get a cultural victory by destroying that city that I have so many great works in? So a lot of things are going on there. Gotcha. Um, Something else the game does well is it's got all these different civilizations or leaders and you can get really nuanced, really ticky tacky into why each leader is better for each different victory condition and this and that. But they've got different attributes. They've got different bonuses, different unique abilities, uh, unique units are something that is also interesting. If you're the Greeks, you can have the hoplite. If you're Japanese, you've got a samurai. Uh, the Koreans have a huacha, a bunch of rockets on a, a cart, which is cool as hell. Um, so that's another <laughs> thing you are able to do. Unique buildings for some of them. You know, just having played Civ for a couple of hours, I can tell that there's it's just loaded with stuff. But um, you know, given its given its history and given its unique uh, qualities. You know, what is it? What do you think makes the game so special? Like, why, you know, obviously it's lasted six iterations over, what, 18 years or something like that. So there's definitely a star quality to it. And, uh, you know, it's never really faded like some franchises have. Why do you think that is? I think something it's able to do well is reinvent itself without completely reinventing itself. Uh, When Sid Meier's works on developing a new iteration of the game because none of these are sequels it's the history of humanity there is no humanity too so each version of the game is simply an improved version of it sid myers likes to say uh it's his rule of thirds one third we're going to keep one third we're going to improve or add to and one third we're going to completely nix so that pattern throughout that forcing yourself to be different, forcing yourself to be better is something that it's done and has forced the game to become better with each iteration. It's Hmm. not just, Oh, we've got better graphics in this one, or we've got more sieves in this one. The mechanics of the gameplay change for the better for the most part through every iteration. So I think that liveliness is what helps make the series Hmm. survive uh, the test of time. Um, so yeah, I mean, I know Andy was kind of looking, Andy and I were looking at some of the um, the differences kind of along the way, and you know, some obviously were much more nuanced and specific, but some were pretty sweeping. You know, trace the major his like kind of like the major points, what you would consider to be the D days of of civilization's history. Yeah, absolutely. So the story of the first civilization game is really cool. You've got. The Sid Meier, as in Sid Meier's Civilization and Sid Meier's, you know, toaster and Sid Meier's coffee maker and Sid Meier's <laughs> Pirates and all the other stuff that has his name on it. Um, so he's lovely Canadian guy and he's about the same age as Bill Gates or Steve Jobs. So he came up with computers the same time that they did when it oh, was mostly done uh, in academic places you know pcs were barely a thing if at all and even when they got more popular it's more of a hobbyist thing uh so he got his computer science degree from the university of michigan and he studied properly but there's a fun story where he got in trouble for using a university computer to play a tic-tac-toe game to create a tic-tac-toe game um how dare he use a computer to create games (laughs) computers Uh, for math joe At the time, he got in trouble for wasting time creating computer games. And as history has shown, that professor was correct to yell at him because he has been a failure in everything that he's done since then. Um, (laughs) He met at a conference later on. Guy's name is John Steely. 
Not only is his name so cool that it's John Steely, Quite his nickname is Wild Bill. So he meets a guy named John Wild Bill Steely, who was, <laughs> to make himself even cooler, an army aviator. He was a major in the army, and they hook up, and they go to play this fight simulator. And Wild Bill is going to play this fight simulator, and he's like, I'm a pilot. I'm going to beat this guy in this game, which makes sense. No, he goes on first, then Sid Myers goes on later and just wipes the floor with him. Aviator guy got, you know, the top score. Sid doubled that. And he's like, how did you do that? He's like, oh, I was watching you. And then I just copied the algorithm that you can clearly see the game doing. And Wild Bill's like, hey, do you want to go into business together? Yes. So hmm. <laughs> uh, they end up making a couple of different fight simulator games and a couple of other different things. Meyer was your developer, and then Wild Bill was the manager, which was perfect because Meyer didn't want to do any of the businessy stuff. And with a name uh, like Wild Bill, I mean. Yes. So you've got Wild Bill and Sid Meyer. Their first game they create is a flight simulator, and it's called Hellcat Ace, speaking of sweet names. Uh, and there's a great <laughs> story where... At this point, computer stores are just hobbyists. There is no computer game store. There's just computer stores or probably like, you know, computer radio shack things pushed together. He would call up trying to pretend to be different people asking for this game. Do you have Hellcat Ace? No, we don't. Do you have Hellcat Ace? No, we don't. And then finally, oh, I, what a terrible business. How do you not have Hellcat Ace? Everyone wants to play this game and you're the one who doesn't have it. Whisper campaign. Well, more like a yes. brilliant yeah, his yell campaign. Whisper campaign. Yeah, his, his yelling campaign. Um, and then he calls up about two or three weeks later and says, like, hey, my name is John Healy. I'm here with Hellcat Ace. We have a company called Microprose, uh, Micro and uh, we'd like to say some copies. Oh, my God, everyone's asking for a Hellcat Ace. I need, like, uh -huh. 17 copies. Right after that, they had a uh, railroad tycoon game based off the mid-'70s 18xx railroading board games that were very popular because that was a thing. And he created Pirates, which I have to say that way because there's an exclamation point at the end of Pirates. <laughs> um, and again, that was uh, popular as well. And some of the mechanics of Pirates went into Civilization. <laughs> there's a fun apocryphal story where Robin Williams was apparently at a dinner with the two of them. And he said to John Wild Bill Steely, hey, you should put this guy's name on the boxes and make him a star. And that's why everything is Sid Meier's Pirates, no Sid Meier's Railroad Tycoon, Sid Meier's, you know, time travel machine. Um, probably never happened, but it's a fun story either way. Oh, so that's uh, so not, not verified. Microprose? No. Is every, that kind of like Every a time I heard this story, even Sid Meier says, well, that's what, you know, John says. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Fun story that's gone through probably did or did not happen. Writing is easy. All you have to do is cross out the wrong words. But picture this. It's late 1991. On 60 Minutes, Governor Bill Clinton won't stop thinking about tomorrow. Filling up your Oldsmobile Cutlass Supreme costs about a buck fourteen a gallon. CNC Music Factory is on your Walkman cassette player, unless you found Nevermind by this brand new band. I think they're called Nirvana. And your <laughs> parents are probably watching Roseanne or Cheers at this point. You're playing Civ on your Compact LTE 386. It's running on MS-DOS. It's only got about 16 sieves because there's only about 16 different colors, is what Sid Meier says. So you don't want to get things too confusing. <laughs> With this, it is a top-down kind of view, uh, much like you would look at a board game. So a lot of the board game influence goes into this. 
Um, it was influenced by the Railroad Tycoon, his Pirates game, um, a little bit of SimCity, a game called Empire. And there was a Civilization board game that helped to, in, as in it's called Civilization, that helped to influence it. Some people say maybe a little bit too much, but it's one of those, you know, maybe you just had some similar ideas. Sid Meier's did eventually say that he played the board game after his computer game, but some of the uh, mechanics went into that as well. He was also influenced by, and this is important, children's history books. The amount of history that you get from especially the early civilization games is that broad stroke uh, summary as opposed to a really detailed book on whoever this person is. When you go through especially the early leaders, you've heard of all of these people before probably. Um, he didn't want to get too, too into the details, and I think he did well with that. Um, yeah, I think like even there's there's this uh, chart you sent us that sort of shows how the uh, the series incorporated new civilizations over the course of it. And while there's a lot of differences and a lot of additions over the years, um, the one of the things that seems pretty consistent, aside from some of like the just straight up photographs that they used to depict these uh, different world leaders, is that all the depictions have a fairly like caricature cartoony bent to them like even today they like really try to like play up them as characters and it's not like photographic yes. representation so i think that children's book influence of, of history is definitely you can see it all throughout the whole series just by looking at this chart yes and we'll also talk a little bit later about how much this game is historical because it is but these people are in no way the George Washington, right. the Genghis Khan, because of all the history that you just create yourself. That was civilization. Let's go quickly through two, three, four, and five, just so we can see what developments popped up through those. Uh, Civ 2 was originally called Civilization 2000, but then they dropped the zeros and just kept it as Civilization 2. This was one of the first AAA games on Windows 95. A couple of things it added in, uh, the new tech tree with more techs, which is an improvement they always do, uh, an isometric view as opposed to a top-down view, which is something they kept uh, less of that board game feel and more of a, you know, like I said, the isometric view. At this point, you had multiple leaders for each civilization. In fact, you could choose your gender in Civ 2. Every Civ had a male or female leader. And then you had... Oh, God, the advisors, the best and worst part of Civilization 2. The advisors are these uh, FMV videos, these full motion video characters, kind of like you have with the Brothers in Mist or in Seventh Guest or in some of these Command and Conquer videos. It is this group of just community theater actors who are trying to tell you what to do. They are chewing the scenery for the back of the room, <laughs> even though they are less than two feet from your face. Our city's defenses are as thin as a Cracker Jack box, sir. Now you do what you like, but don't come hollering to me when some upstart nation puts your palace to the torch. My analysis indicates that by building additional trade routes, we can interface more frequently with other nations and ergo ipso facto increase the science production rate. Not so fast, Beaker boy. Don't let him fast talk you, General. We got other turkeys to shoot. Sire, the very cobblestones of our streets possess more learning than we do. In truth, sire, we suck. Oh, man. Oh, 
had enough of this. It, you need to just jump onto YouTube and watch these Civ 2 advisors. They're in togas, and then they're in modern clothing, and one of them is an Elvis impersonator for reasons that are beyond me, but um, <laughs> it was just... It's something that came and went, and it was a brief moment of history, and it, we are luckier and unluckier for it having happened. This is also where um, modding started to come into the Civ community. It got a lot bigger later, but Civ 2 started with modding. Civ 3 was in 2001. Uh, this added a couple of new victory conditions, such as uh, domination, cultural, diplomatic. Uh, and then actually for just this game, they had things like regicide and capture the princess, where kind of like when you kill the king in a chess game, you lose uh, when you win. If you kill your opponent's king in Civ, they automatically lose. So it doesn't matter how big they are. If you can kill that king, hmm. there you go. So that also came and went, but that's fun. Yeah. And like you mentioned that whole checkmate scenario too that they introduced and got rid of. Um, mm -hmm. is it, do you think that was just purely because it seems like the series has also tried to find new ways to rebalance the game as they're introducing new features? And do you think it was taken out purely for balance? Like, do you think that's something they would ever reintroduce because it seems like when civilizations kind of get so much momentum like how do you stop them um i'm wondering how that like as a facet over the course of the whole series it has evolved like how do you how do you that push and pull like that literal tug of war like how has that changed maybe how leading up into six how is six as a way to get us into like what what defines six how is six like changing or tweaking that dynamic um both on like a single player campaign basis and like a multiplayer experience what they've been doing is trying to balance out the different victory conditions to make sure that it's not just so easy to be a science victory or just so easy to get a military victory and it's something that i think they've done well especially with you can have a an ai sieve get a religious victory and just kind of snipe a game from out under you like it's a really sneaky thing mm. they're able to do which is fun because it seems like the religious victory just on its surface would be uh, kind of an uh, you know a weaker condition, but you do have to get your religion to be prominent in fifty in fifty percent of every single sieve. So it it can be powerful, especially because you've got these religious units running around, and they've pretty much you can cross borders with your religious units like you couldn't do with your military units. So you can have a really powerful military, and these guys will just take it right from out under you. With Civ Six, there's a new leader, Eleanor of Aquitaine, who can be a leader for France or England, and she uses culture to take over cities, which is an interesting way. So you can take over cities not by buying them, not by conquering them, but by using her unique ability and having great works take over a city because you are so popular. Oh, we want to defect and go join your great civilization. So they've done interesting things like that. Even the cultural victories at one point were a bit easier, but now it's through a mechanic called tourism, and you need to create these specific buildings and find these specific great artists and writers and, and musicians right. to get that cultural victory. Civ 4's biggest accomplishment to me is going to be Baba Yetu, written by Christopher Tin. It won a Grammy. Civ won a Grammy, ladies and gentlemen. Baba Yetu, Yetu.
it's been covered by orchestras it's been sung across uh high schools and colleges across this land it's a really really well done song uh it is a uh swahili translation of the lord's prayer beautifully done opens up civ for one of the greatest hmm. songs ever yeah. to hear Baba Yetu. What else do you need? Yeah. Uh, it's done with a 3D engine. There's more detailed diplomacy, which becomes uh, more important later. Siv Myers himself said that he didn't just want it to be a game where you just destroy your enemies. And, you know, what's that quote about hearing the lamentation of their women and the blood of their children or whatever. Um, so with more diplomacy and later on culture and religion, there's different ways to win the game that don't involve just I'm going to win because I've got more swords than you do. Um, combat improved a bit with Civ 4. Some of the complaints about Civ 3 was it was too random with the combat. It's kind of like flipping a coin. You could have a warrior destroy a tank, and I've had it happen many a time. Some people thought it was a cute facet of the game, and it was, but it was also annoying when your tank was destroyed by a warrior. So that got a little <laughs> bit better in the later games. Civ 5 um, was at first criticized for being overly simplistic compared to earlier editions of the game. Uh, Alex and Andy, because you guys have just started playing this game, you know how complex it can be just a few hours in. Civ 4 was incredibly complex. Civ 5 took a step back from that. So being as someone who is really, really new to this game and hearing how Civ 5 was the simplest of all of them at the point it came out, and then like, would you say that Civ 6 has simplified things further to start before the expansions came out? Do you think they continue to go in that direction of making it more accessible to the general audience? I would say that Civ 6 is more accessible than Civ 4. Um, I wouldn't say that it is simpler than Civ 5. It would be just about as complex. Mm -hmm. uh, now, you mentioned before the DLCs and everything. With the Rise and Fall and Gathering Storm expansions... It's a prop. I would say the fully loaded Civ 6 is more complicated than the fully loaded Civ 5. Gotcha. Uh, but also, I want to say not problematically so, but I've been playing the game for so long that I really find it hard to divest myself from, you know, the experiences and say like, oh, it's it's simple. It's simple because I've been doing this since mm -hmm. 2003. Yeah, right. Um, so it is complicated, but I do give the game credit for, like I said earlier, you start off very simple where you've got a settler and a another warrior or scout unit, and then it builds in all the complexity as you're going through it. Right. Of all the ones I've seen, and I've only kind of kept my eye on this on this series, uh, like on the periphery, but this one definitely looked the most, I guess, visually attractive to me. Like the way they did the yes. map, it has this tactile feel. You mentioned earlier, you know, check out the music to this game and I one of the things that stood out to me about Civ 6 right away was the music's incredible the audio design is incredible everything it, it it's really good it seems at communicating whether your action was successful or a neg had a negative impact and the music is just there as a backdrop but it's hard not to pay attention to it because it is really really well scored 
Um, and at the same time, it plays really well with this like old cartography style map that looks kind of burnt and aged and it's got all kinds of drawings on it and paintings and watermarks. And that's, that's like a, it's what I, from what I was reading, it's like a new, um, a new stylistic approach they took to revealing the map over time and plays into this age of exploration theme. And all those things to me as a new player are exciting because those are things that, you know, any like budding history buff might think, oh, that's a cool way to present these really complex concepts to the player. And I'm wondering if, you know, first off, how that that style is maybe further enriched the series from what it was doing in five. Is that any different? And how has the changes to this game, um, especially given that it's being ported to consoles and strategy games are historically really tough to port, like how this game's visuals and, and aesthetics have all kind of come together to make this perhaps a more appealing game? Is, is what I'm sort of getting at. Uh, would you yeah, agree? Appealing is a good know, word. Right. Um, it's also, it's more fun this way. Sid Meier is very good at just creating a game that is enjoyable, a game that is fun. He wants to give you a series of interesting choices to make, uh, which is one of his mechanics, but also just throw in the fun things. But that's one of the reasons they got rid of uh, corruption in Civ 3 is corruption wasn't fun. It was this thing you had to manage and it was always a problem. Um so, you know, when you mentioned the old cartography style, when you haven't seen part of a sea, there's like sea monsters there. And, you know, here there be dragons kind of yeah, stuff off yeah. to the side because that's more fun because I'm going to go walk into the unknown. Yeah, I know that technically it's just an unexplored part of the map, but like now my scout is exploring. And you mentioned the music. The music is fantastic. Some of my favorite sieves are sometimes there because of mechanics, but I love Robert the Bruce of Scotland. His music is fantastic. I love listening to Robert the Muse, Robert the Bruce's music while I'm playing. Um, John Curtin is the leader for Australia, and it's a bunch of different versions of Waltzing Matilda. It's hmm. a fun thing. I've just noticed like the different graphical changes in terms of between the different civs, and Civ Six seems like so much more um, like cartoony, um, self-aware, and sort of like reminiscent of Pixar. Uh, kind of animation and I, I wonder like how much of that is because i think civ like has a, at least for me like civ always had this mystique about it like you know it was sort of like a very complex uh historian buffs like sort of game you know you had to be uh and you know that that's i realize now that's a false conception but um you know i kind of wonder if some of that change was just to be more appealing to people who might be sort of like wary of Civ's complexity or maybe even on the surface bored by historical themed things because I know for me like I'll be honest those were two things that sort of turned me off from initially from the game but you know seeing it seeing these world leaders kind of more animated and fun and energetic and for somebody who's more like interested in humanities dealings and personality and psychology like seeing that made it much more relatable for me and much more enjoyable to play. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, Joe, but yeah, I think you've got a good point. It can be, it's trying sometimes to fight against its reputation as, Oh, it's this very complex game partially by, like you said, making it look like a Pixar game. Uh, it's not super realistic in its visual elements. Uh, the map has been described as having a painterly style to it. So you're right by making it look simple 
Civ Five is when you're really getting into the animations being more stylistic and cartoonish. One of the reasons is, first of all, this game is supposed to be fun, so you don't want to kill actual human-looking humans. That's not fun. Shouldn't be fun, anyway. But also because this is not a history game. These are not the George Washington. This is not the uh, Genghis Khan. These are just depictions of them. So I think by making it cartoonish, that was an important choice because it's helping to tell the player this is not history because obviously Gandhi didn't blow anyone up with atomic bombs. We'll get into that. There are characteristics where you don't want to assume that just because this civilization acts this way in a game, oh, that must be how it was historically. No, it is painting in broad strokes. So they used broad strokes with the art design. Um, by choosing more simple designs, it is going to help dissuade the fears of, oh my God, there's 27 systems that I've got to learn and it's this and that and I don't know who the heck um, this leader is. But yeah, it's it's going for fun. It's going for appeal. It's going to be, it's going for fun and appeal. So. Like, you know, and having played it now, I see the fun and I see the appeal, which is great. Like, I'm glad that, you know, you brought me into it and... Um, I got to experience, you know, only a couple of hours, but I can definitely see why people are obsessed with this game and why it's withstood the test of time. Um, you know, like I was telling you before, Joe, I think it's a game that it has so much to offer and there's so many layers to it. And it's one of those games that really seems to reward you for the more mastery that you have over it and seems to provide like more immersive gameplay experiences, the more complex your knowledge of it becomes. You know, like in my playthrough, um, just for listeners to get sort of a first time play uh, perspective, I played as the Spartans, uh, Gorgo of Sparta, um, just because, you know, Sparta's baller as hell. I've been a fan of the Greeks, so I chose a Greek nation. And uh, we started off founding the city of Sparta and basically exploring across the map, trying to ward off barbarians, uh, you know, turn by turn, sending my warriors out, my scouts out to broaden my city by establishing other cities i guess they would be called districts or am i wrong on that joe yes you're so when by expanding a city you need to build in civ 6 now different districts so it, it used to be you can just put everything on one tile and uh, now you I need see. to expand now I like the fact that a city has to expand because, as we know, historically speaking, it's not like New York City is the same size as Cincinnati, for example. One is clearly bigger. In this game, cities expand as well. The problem with that is then you get into, like I said earlier, the specialization of certain cities, which I didn't like as much. If I need to get some good units out of this city that happens to be near a war that I'm fighting, I want to produce a bunch of good units and I want to put a, uh, you know, some kind of armories or barracks to improve those skills. Well, I can't do that unless I have an encampment district. So that becomes a problem because you can only have so many districts in a city of a certain size. So it can be limiting. I like the sprawl of it, but the specificity is kind of a pain in my side sometimes. Yeah, it, it was interesting because it added like an, you ha I really had to be aware of my expansion across the map and understand really like the geolocation uh, benefits to really the development of that gameplay. Basically, I moved south uh, from Sparta and eventually established two different districts um, 
Unmans, which was on a river. And that I sort of turned into a, I believe it was sort of like a scientific place. Because, you know, like, you know, Athens is sort of pinnacle of Greek study. Um, so I turned that into more of a, sci- a place dedicated to scientific research with a library and a great scientist. Uh, and I ended up going further down to the coast and I established the coastal city of Mycenae. Um, and basically from there, I was able to build uh, ships and start sailing across the ocean to find other civilizations and land where I could kind of expand my reach further. So it was pretty interesting because, you know, I had to pick certain locations that would benefit me in certain ways. Like, for example, I had some sort of benefit for being on a river. You know, obviously, the, the advantages of having a coastal district are many, but um one includes like added resources from fishing crabs up from the ocean and eventually being able to expand my reach. So, well, I'll tell you is. what, you're actually hitting on one of the big themes, not only of civilization, but of history and how we teach history is some of the, uh, the big ideas or the big questions. Uh, geography is destiny. Thousands have lived without love, not one without water. If you're landlocked, Um, you're in the middle of America, for example, you're going to develop a lot differently than someone that develops on the coast. What are the benefits of that? What are the problems of that? If you've got a lot of gold resources, you're going to use that or someone's going to come and take those gold resources from you because that's how it's going to work. Um, With the different districts, there are what are called adjacency bonuses. So if if your science uh, district, which is called a campus, is near rainforests, you're going to get a bonus because there's a lot of things to study in a rainforest. If it is near a mountain, ostensibly because you can see the stars clearer, uh, I guess is the logic behind that, you're going to get your science bonus. If your theater district is near uh, different world wonders, you're going to get a benefit from that. If your commercial district is near mines or near a harbor or near other districts, you get bonuses there as well. So using the land around you is something that you have to do, not only historically speaking, but in this game. And especially with the Gathering Storm expansion, the world is a lot more alive. You're near a river. Obviously, it's beneficial to be near a river. Um, Historically, you understand why. In the game, there's certain bonuses to uh, food production and such. But that river can flood now. So that river that is your source of life can also take away. Now, just like the Egyptians, the real Egyptians did in the uh, past, that flooded area is now more fertile. So it became a more fertile area. Same thing like you see in this game. There's volcanoes in Gathering Storm, which have benefits, uh, including science, including that um, nice ashy soil that comes happens afterwards. However, we all know that volcanoes are also going to kill your ass dead if you happen to be next to one when it erupts. I think one of the things that I really enjoyed about Civ Six in the little time I got to play with it was just how the, the map is very much like the interface itself. You you don't you're not always stuck in menus to select all these different things. You're actually touching these units on the map. You're touching the rainforest. You're like putting deciding like how close you want to build this thing near that volcano. And I found like my attention was driven so much towards the map itself. Um, and that kind of helps like you think about like, where am I going to geographically place these things? And it's not so much even just like visual, but then there are those ramifications down the line where, yeah, if like I build this next to a really volatile, you know, part of the environment or in an area that's going to get hit by 
uh, a lot of intense weather now in, in the Gathering Storm expansion, there's going to be this ripple effect that you have to deal with later. Um, historically, it's funny to think like, oh, you know, there's this famous city that was never maybe a coastal city, but now I'll make it a coastal city and like mm. how that plays out. And I'm wondering, you know, as you're playing the game and like picking around the map where you go, like Alex just happened to find his way to the ocean, which happened to be convenient because he just happened to need ships. But like, I guess I'll start by asking, do you ever like want to build your city historically accurate in any way? Does the game let you do that? Does it randomly place you on the map? Like, is there a chance that you could make as close a version of X civilization as possible? If you wanted to do that, like if you want to think of this as a role playing game, then yes, you have that ability. Uh, In fact, for several iterations of the game now, there has been a accurate earth map as accurate as the game can make it and you can have what are called true start locations so you can start if you're the french you can have your paris be approximately where paris is Mm. and that's beneficial because you know i've probably got the germans over here i've got the english up there i've got the spaniards over there i know the japanese are on this map but i'm not going to see them for a very long time i know the mayans are here but it's going to be a couple of generations before i get to them right so yes you can play historically accurate as much as you would like to uh but i'll be honest that's something that i never really got into i haven't played a true start location map in years just because i like not knowing who i'm going to run into and where i'm going to run into them you would never say hey i'm gonna recreate you know the tragedy of pompeii and put you know put them right next to a volcano <laughs> and just oh you absolutely could but the thing is you also don't know when that volcano is going to go up so even if you want to oh, create the tragedy of Pompeii it might be in 1852 when Pompeii uh, finally erupts so now it's more like an alternative history book mm-hmm. than it is a true history book unless you get into some serious modding where you could probably create a Pompeii that goes off at approximately the right time. But that's not as much my scene with this game. Mm. I do want to talk about some of the uh, hilarious civilization memes. But first, <laughs> I think that, because I know there are some, I've, I've done some research and I think there are some good ones <laughs> worth mentioning. But, um, but first, another thing I came across in my research was that uh, I saw that that Civ Six was actually the least, the lowest, had the lowest score of any Civ game on Metacritic. I want you, as our distinguished guest and knowledgeable expert on the Civ franchise, to tell me why you think that is and why you think it's wrong. <laughs> Give me your best defense um, of Civ Six. <laughs> I think it's just because it's the most recent one. This is something that there's probably a name for this. I call it the Doctor Who effect which is this, the most reason, you know, you've got a doctor who you love. He's your favorite one and he's going to be replaced by somebody else. And we hate this new doctor because he's not as good as this previous doctor. And then you fall in love with this new doctor and this person is really great. And then when this person leaves, it's going to be replaced by this new doctor who's terrible. And we hate this new doctor until you start to like, it, and you see where this is going. I honestly think that it, there's no reason it should be, that much lower and it's not i think it if i remember correctly civ uh six's metascore critic is about 88 and there was one that was rated at 90 so it's not like it's dramatically dropped but i think it's just because it's the new one 
People loved Civ 4, and then they complained about Civ 5, like I said, because it was overly simplistic. And then Civ 5 was amazing. And then, you know, Civ 6 was dropped, and people are going to complain about Civ 6. But Civ 6 is fantastic. People are going to complain about Civ 7 and the fact that you can or cannot do whatever thing. So I think it's really just that. Hmm. If we were to check this a year into the Civ 7 uh, process... I think we're going to see the same thing. The Metacritic score is going to go up for Civ 6, and we're going to hate the new Civ 7 until Civ 8 comes out. Hmm. Yeah, I've heard a, a lot. Fair, fair assessment. Yeah, I've heard a lot about how it's almost like every Civ needs to mature a little bit before it sort of gets to its like best version. Um, yeah. But but one of the things that has come up a lot is just that people have issues with how the AI works in a way. Um, and whether like, you know, the AI just kind of seems to do what they, they don't expect it to do. Um, and that was something that you even told us before this, that, that the AI has had kind of sort of had the same design. And I, I wonder when, when a community is sort of harping on the same thing and the developer actively chooses not to change it, that tells me that that's sort of a design choice and less so we don't know how to fix it. Cause I'm wondering if like, if, if the AI just did what the player expected it to do, wouldn't it create less friction and make the game overall easier? Because especially when you're talking about, you know, one group or one country trying to, you know, make negotiations with another, you know, historically speaking, countries are, you know, often asking of another country something that is not always like the most conducive to that country's goals or or, uh, aspirations, right? So it's almost like, yeah, you're gonna have this country come in out of nowhere and ask for this random favor and it's up to you to decide how you want to deal with that. And I'm just wondering like what your take is on that. Do you think that's a design choice or do you, do you want to see that improve in 7? Like is, it's it's yeah. not that the AI has not changed. The AI's always had some problems, but it's been a different problem with each iteration of Civ. So they are trying to find a good balance and we will eventually get there. Um, I don't know. But yeah, in terms of uh, diplomacy, a lot of times civs will either make a demand that doesn't make any sense or they'll refuse to trade certain items. Um, In this game, I've had examples where like, hey, can you go to war with me against this other civilization? And they'll say no. And I'll say, what will make this deal more agreeable? And they say, if you add one piece of gold, literally one piece of gold, (laughs) which I will gladly get them. In terms of selling great works of art or writing or music, a lot of times it's really problematic to get those from them unless you're doing a direct trade. And there's sometimes when I will offer a civilization almost everything that I own and they won't do it, even though I'm giving them I'm giving them literal cities at some point and they still say no. So it's it's been different in each game. In terms of knowing each leader and what they're going to do, they've got abilities, not abilities, attributes, which are hidden at first and then you find them out. Sometimes this is nice. It makes sense that this Civ is going to want to build as many wonders and is going to be angry when you do so. Sometimes it's, man, I love armies that have a lot of horses. You need to have more horses. It is... um, 1942 we don't have we're not playing with horses anymore so i don't know why you're upset with me that i'm not using horses i have tanks that are on your border so sometimes that's just a thing that doesn't make as much sense Mm -hmm. but there we are yeah 
So speaking of tanks on borders and aggression, <laughs> um, <laughs> one of the things that I discovered was a two-word phrase, nuclear Gandhi. Yes. So Civ has always it, it not taken itself um, incredibly seriously since its original conception. Speaking of that original conception, um, Gandhi was a leader and he was very passive. There are There's an aggression leader aggression meter for each of the civilizations. Genghis Khan is going to be very aggressive. Gandhi is going to be very not aggressive. With the original Civ, when you chose the government of democracy, it decreased how aggressive your civilization was going to be. Gandhi's aggression was so low, it was a one. When you take one and you subtract two, you get 255. It's similar to Y2K. Um, when you take 1999 and you add one, you get 1900 because the one nine was a placeholder and those last two digits were the only ones going around. Um, so Gandhi would go from an aggression of one to an aggression of 255 oh, on a one to five <laughs> scale. So Gandhi would late game because, again, you have to invent democracy, become super aggressive and just nuke everything that you own. And this is something that they saw their mistake, they realized it, and they just kept it. <laughs> so Gandhi <laughs> has had a preference for nuclear weapons ever since then, again, because it's fun. One of his leader attributes in Civ Six is pref uh, preference to nuclear weapons. <laughs> what? It reminds me of that, like, that quote that's like, I am... I am become death destroyer of worlds. Yes, that's what it reminds me of. Because destroyer of worlds. My attempts to avoid violence have failed. An eye for an eye only makes the world blind. Talking about how far, I guess, the game can veer from reality of some of these civilizations and how fictional it can be. I mean, do you think historical or any sort of educational aspects that this this game like playing this game can provide to players like can they glean knowledge or wisdom from yes. civilization so this is where i'm going to put my social studies teacher hat on yes there are absolutely things you can learn um and there are also some things that you would need to unlearn um Clearly, we're not going to learn about how the Incas destroyed the Japanese in 2033 with help from the French. So there's that fun alternative history, you know, fictional nonsense that goes there. Um, but in terms of the big ideas of history, we talked a little bit earlier about um, geography as destiny. How does the geography of an area affect the people who reside in it? Uh, historically, Japan was an island nation that could either choose to be isolationist or cooperate with nearby nations based on where it is and the fact that it's an island nation. However, you've got Portugal and you've got England who became naval powers because of their coastlines. The story of the 20th century Slavic states becoming uh, a pawn between the USSR and Russia and the allies and the European Union. So that's how geography affects uh, the destiny of a sieve in the real world. In civilization, again, if you are on an island, you're going to have to build ships real soon in order to go and explore. If you've got a lot of early resources, you're going to be able to uh, flourish early. 
But if you don't have those later oil or uranium resources, you're going to need to get them. And you're probably going to have to use either force or diplomacy in order to get them. You can see how this ties into actual history as well. Sometimes you've got a lot of resources, someone's going to come and get them from you if you've got a lot of luxury resources. So you are now a target because you have dyes and truffles and gypsum and gold and all these other things. So one of the big essential questions of geography that you can get from this is geography is destiny. Uh, something else is how does globalization lead to an imperative interdependence among nations? Sometimes late in the Civ game, you've got a bit of mutually assured destruction where I can't attack anyone because they're going to blow me off the map. And also, I need this trade route and we've share a uh, religion. So I'm not going to be able to I'm not going to want to attack somebody who is the same faith as me. Or we've got these economic alliances because I've been selling you truffles for how many turns. <laughs> so things become really complicated really quickly in Civ and in actual uh, 20th and 21st uh, history. Uh, another one of the essential questions from history and from the game is how do civilizations attain power and what's the most effective form of that power? It's not just about might a lot of the times because if you're just focused on getting as many um, units as possible, I'm going to come over with a tank and roll over your archers. I don't care how many you have because I'm more scientifically advanced. So do you attain power by science, your resources, your military, the sheer size of your population, diplomacy and religion are other ways to get power. The Holy Roman Empire used its religious power very well, as well as other sorts of power. Could you do that in a 21st century society, you know, weaponize, so to say, your religion? Some will say yes, some will say no. It, you know, have we gone beyond this? I don't know. Uh, but in terms of what can we learn from a game like this? It's those essential questions. Um, what if is also a very interesting question. What could have happened if this happened? What could have happened? And there's a lot of that throughout Civ. Like I said, obviously the Incas are not going to be attacking the Japanese with the help of the French in a history book. There's in fact a book by Orson Scott Card, who's known better for Ender's Game and that series. Uh, it's called Past Watch. And it's based on, or I mean, it was inspired by, uh, Orson Scott Card playing Civ 2. And the idea behind Pass Watch is to put a real quick elevator pitch into it. We've got this ability to see backwards in time. We can send this one dude back in time. If we could change anything, what would it be? It would be adjusting Christopher Columbus's impact on the Western world and the Mesoamerican world. And now that's able to rise up and flourish instead of being taken down by the um, Inquisition. So what if is another excellent question yeah. for Civ and for history. And I mean, especially with the expansions, um, the most recent one, uh, Gathering Storm, Civ's like also giving a chance to look ahead at, you know, imagining future solutions, future scenarios, letting certain things play out. Um, and obviously, you know, it's it's, you know, filling in the gaps where it needs to for the sake of the game's pace. But there's something about those um, again, those what if scenarios that the, that they present and that ebb and flow and the di the dynamic nature of civilizations that they don't always have this constant forward upward momentum. They go back and forth and have dark periods, uh, gold periods. They have, um, you know, these these challenges that they have to face and have to endure. I'm wondering, like as a teacher, is are there things about the game as is that you could 
even use in a classroom setting to say, you know, this is how this could play out. And like, you can have an interesting, um, somewhat truthful conversation about that. Much like there are classrooms who use Minecraft in the classroom for educational purposes. There are some classrooms that use civilization for educational purposes as well. The problem is there's so much strategy that you would need to teach uh, in order to make the game successful, it would not be worth uh, the classroom time, in my opinion. Articles have been written about it. I've read several of them. It's not something that I would touch. Similarly to, you would almost need to be teaching strategy. And if you're going to teach strategy, well, then now I'm going to teach you chess or checkers, which is a much simpler mm. game to master than the hours spent trying to teach a class civilization. In terms of global warming, however, the global warming effects of Gathering Storm have affected how I look at global warming. One of the critiques that I would have is, for the most part, the solutions to global warming in Civ are purely scientific. We're going to develop this technology and tech is going to solve it. Tech probably is going to have a big effect in climate change, but there's less of a diplomatic angle to it. There's some diplomatic benefits to doing certain things with um, banning coal or oil and so on and so forth. Um, but it is a very one direction science focused way of hmm. attacking climate change. And again, it's usually me focusing on my sieve as opposed to all of us working together. Right. So you almost think that they could almost introduce like additional win conditions for even that scenario, or maybe if early in the game, you can convince certain civilizations or countries to not use certain fossil fuels and reduce pollution, maybe that would prevent you from having to rely purely on a scientific solution. But now here's the thing. If in real history, we would have in 1800 said, hey, we shouldn't be using as much coal and oil because global warming is going to be a thing, you would have been laughed out of the room because that really True. wasn't a concern right. at that point. We didn't have that information. Who deserves more credit than the wife of a coal miner? Now, I as a player know that I want to have less of the effects of global warming later in the game. So I sometimes try to avoid coal or oil uh, and go straight to nuclear. But that's me as you know, a player who knows what's going to happen. You can't, in the role-playing sense, expect the civilizations to know to do the same thing. When I look at Civ's win conditions, I think to myself, like, the most realistic one, in my opinion, seems to be the cultural and religious victories. And ultimately, like, you're changing the mindset of people, of, and you're changing the way they look at the world and changing their belief system. You know, like, you can conquer people all day, but if you're going to be fighting against your own subjects or, you know, you can, you can fly to space, but, you know, if you don't have people's hearts and minds, they're not going to follow you there. And so, you know, getting like thinking about the whole cultural identity thing, I, I just kind of wonder what the game's choices of rulers and the technologies that those civilizations have and the units that they're given. Let's say for going back to Germany, you know, there's a difference between Germany under Angela Merkel versus Germany under Otto von Bismarck versus Germany under Hitler versus, you know, Germany under any other older leader than that. And the identity, the cultural identity obviously changes um, based on who's in power. Um, 
Yes, and, and that's actually he, something that the game gets criticized for, is when you look at a civilization, no civilization has gone from the beginning of time to the present. Things have changed, things have evolved. Um, there is a game coming out, I believe it's called Humankind, you can see kind of a similar uh, example there, where there is going to be more of a rise and fall, to steal a word from Civ, about these different civilizations. You don't have to last through the entire test of time, because as you mentioned, a Civ is not going to run the same way throughout its entire existence. Germany is a fantastic real-world example. So in this game, should these leaders change throughout time? Um, I don't have an answer to that. Is that going to make it overly complicated? Maybe, but they've also been able to present overly complicated structures in a very teachable way already. So maybe that can be something that changes over time to be somewhat more realistic to how civilizations do work. Yeah, I think also, I mean, when you think about, I think World War II, for example, there's so much reactivity going on. So, you know, Germany ends up shifting its its cultural identity to be much more nationalistic. And I, for my limited amount of gameplay and civilization, it doesn't really seem like there are, like your culture can be affected by other cultures' aggression or lack of aggression. Like you don't become... I see why that would be, but I also think it would be an interesting game if, like, your culture did shift with respect to the broader civilization's actions, if that makes sense. Yes, and part of that is because this is framed as a god game where you are controlling all of the things. Uh, you can uh, use the policy cards that are available to slightly change uh, your population, uh, making them um, more war-ready or making them more... Um, produce more culture because that's what's going on. So there's a bit of that, but you are right. Um, in terms of actual riots or protests or things coming you know, from the populace, um, for example, we see what's happening in Hong Kong right now. There's not that much of that in this game, which is a critique that there's no level of that. Oh, the people want to change this. The people are going to say, we want whales. That's about as... <laughs> um, you know, protesty as they get, except for defecting to another city, which they can do if the loyalty is down enough. But loyalty is so easy to maintain. It's really not a problem. Um, now, that corruption and that lack of loyalty played a bigger role in Civ 3, but that wasn't a fun mechanic, so it got rid of it. So there are some times where some of the criticisms of Civ as a series are results of, well, it's not fun to do that. So we're not going to put in this unfun mechanic for this game. Frequently, you're right, there is no racism, there is no slavery, there are no, um, a lot of the blights of history do not make themselves known in civilization, because it's not fun. And that's a really, it's, it, people say that that's an absolutely problematic thing. And I get that. Um, you can also make the argument, like I said, it's not a fun mechanic this is supposed to be an enjoyable game so we are ignoring racism and slavery and yeah that's something yeah. that the developers have had to make that choice for every iteration obviously the civilization it's going to leave other civilizations out um you know for every france germany u.s there's smaller civilization that's kind of uh, maybe isn't as written about in the history books in your opinion, what do you think the game is saying in, with regards to the, to the question, what is a civilization? 
you know, I, I think uh, I think that you know we all we often hear history is written by the victors, and I just wonder if that's maybe at play, or if it's something else in your estimation. I know uh, Sid Meier's ha- Sid Meier had some more problems with histories written by the victors. This is clearly a Western created game with the original Civ. It's gotten more diverse. It's gotten better since then. Um, he also has come out and said, like, we call it the civilizations because the game is called civilization. You're right. It would be better to say um, a people or a nation or a state, but they use the word Civ because it's just in that sense of the mechanic. It's weird to talk about the American civilization because that's not how we talk and that's not really a thing. So in terms of how do they define a civilization, he acknowledges that that word is a game mechanic. And then what does he use to help identify different civilizations? Um, Throughout the game, there are things like the visual or musical elements that help define what a civilization is. It is the choices of what they do in wartime with their unique units. It's the choices of what that culture has focused on. Now, we mentioned how that changes um, era to era, leader to leader, but there are some broad strokes that you are able to broad stroke ideas that you're able to identify with each civilization. There is also things like the aggression level, which in earlier games was, you know, a number one through five. And that I think reflects the leader more so than the civilization. What is a civilization? It is a combination of many complex systems working to create a specific type of people who relate to other people on that planet. That's also kind of what the game is, a complex series of systems to help the gamer, the creator, control these people and work with other civilizations on the planet. Well stated. Yeah. Has the Civilization series ever, and maybe Six would be the one to do it if it it hasn't, um, is the the impact of information in the internet as opposed in like in terms of how civilizations and different countries interact with one another? Like, can you set up like along with all these other tech trees for things like fighting climate change and like expanding your reach? Does that also play in with like okay, I have like a data center set up, and now there are people who can corrupt that data center, or like I can send misinformation around or influence. Uh, the progress of another country like are they playing with that kind of stuff already or is that like too recent interesting how civilization has changed the use of the internet since its inception uh in civ 3 one of the world wonders was the internet france built the internet and they are the only ones with internet because that's how that works um it has become a tech or a civic since then But in later Civ Civ 6 expansions, social media is a civic that you can play with and expand. So in terms of the misinformation and all of that, this is a game that came out in 2016. I'm going to let that fact kind of just sit for itself. I imagine that your idea that you can create misinformation campaigns and things like that could be something that we see in Civ 7. In the expansions, it gets a little bit more futuristic with some of the uh, texts and actually the civics. It never 
becomes a science fiction game, but it absolutely has certain science fiction elements in terms of what it predicts for the future. It would not surprise me that they didn't look ahead and see we're going to do, you know, hacking cybersecurity things, blah, blah, blah. But I imagine that you're right. That's going to be a part of the Civilization 7 whenever that comes mm-hmm. out. When 2021 hits, uh, we'll be giving you a little ring to come on and uh, give us your thoughts. Heck yeah. Will podcasts make their way into civilization? Well, we, oh, won't, be to, we, won't, be, we won't be at Alpha Centauri yet. So Yeah. Well, uh, I think that's a great place to cap the conversation. Um, I just want to thank you again, Joe, for joining us uh, and suggesting the game. This is um, definitely one of the most interesting strategy games I've seen and uh, I very much want to check the game out further so I can really take a civilization all the way from beginning to end and see the whole ebb and flow. The, uh, the expansions especially look really fascinating to me. So I may be checking this out and uh, hitting you up for tips uh, along the way. Yeah, Let man. me know when the addiction grabs you. <laughs> <laughs> Hey everyone, this is your co-host Alex Koval here. As we approach the end of the year, and hell, the end of the decade, I find myself reflecting on the past 10 years. Although so much has changed in my life since 2010, one thing that has remained the same is my love for video games, especially their ability to bring people together. Some of you may already know this, but gaming was in some ways responsible for my friendship with Andrew in the first place. Fast forward 25 years and it continues to be our favorite shared pastime, connecting us over hundreds of miles. I take this podcast, for example. Screen Looking was created because Andy and I were eager to discuss our excitement over the Resident Evil 2 remake and share that enthusiasm with others. Fifteen episodes later, and this show has become a true testament to just how much that shared gaming history has meant to us. Video games have helped us both change for the better, by exposing us to experiences and ideas that are only possible through the realm of gaming. I think this episode, perhaps more than any other, is indicative of that. Neither Andy nor I had even played Civilization before, but having seen Joe's passion for the game firsthand, I was excited to hear more about its appeal. Two hours of intense conversation later, I find myself deeply fascinated with the game, and asking myself how our civilization will rise to meet the challenges that it currently faces. In a time when divisiveness seems so prevalent, I think it is important to remember the things that unify us whether it be a love of video games or something else. Focus on those shared experiences. Work together, and when no common ground exists, strive for understanding. That will be my mantra going into the new decade, and I hope you all join me there. Finally, I want to say thank you to all of our friends, families, guests, and listeners of the show. Without your support and enthusiasm, Andy and I couldn't have accomplished what we have in the last year. It really means the world to us. We have some great stuff planned for 2020. So, as Deckard Cain so eloquently stated in Diablo 2, Stay a while and listen. We promise that you won't be disappointed. Well, that's it, folks. Thanks again for joining us for a year of screen looking, a podcast where close friends take a closer look at their favorite video games. Have yourselves a very happy holiday and an excellent new year. <laughs>